when you face a situation and uh, and you don't know all the answers that curiosity allows you to be comfortable with that ambiguity that uncertainty of not knowing what lies ahead you're listening to choose to be curious a show all about curiosity we talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Take a step back in history with me to another time that felt overwhelmingly bleak. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him and who take him to his rest today pray that what he was to us, what he wished for others, will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? I've been thinking a lot about that line from George Bernard Shaw, popularized by Bobby Kennedy and made unforgettable in Teddy's eulogy for his brother. What is it about some people, especially some leaders, that they can see the same, often dark reality the rest of us are looking at, and then see past it to something bigger and hopeful, to see what today's guest would describe as the positive, inherent, generative potential within the present? Can more of us learn to do that? Can we teach it? This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm always on the prowl for curiosity practices, ways for us to build our collective inquiry muscle to ask more and better questions. Questions like that deceptively simple query, why not? Or perhaps even more importantly, how might we? When I first learned of Tojo Thatchenkari's work around appreciative intelligence, I was very excited by what seemed an intriguing mix of business acumen and faith in humanity. I thought a little conversation about our present's generative potential would feel pretty good right now, and I'm delighted to have Tojo join me today. Tojo Thatchenkari is a professor and director of the Organization Development and Knowledge Management Program at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University in Arlington, Virginia. He's the author of hundreds of articles and over a dozen books, among them Appreciative Intelligence, Seeing the Mighty Oak in the Acorn, which was a Harvard Business Review recommended book. So welcome, Tojo. Thank you, Lynn. I'm excited to be on this show. I'm excited to have you as well. So you had me at the acorn metaphor. So tell me more about seeing the mighty oak. 
within? Um, thank you, Lynn. Um, it came out of some personal observations of while doing my uh, dissertation um, um, at Case Western, I was uh, trying to understand innovation um, and, and got very curious about uh, Palo Alto's, the Silicon Valley. And, and, and when I found that most of the innovations we have experienced today have come from this small area called uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, think about uh, Hewlett Packard and Apple, the garage culture, both started in a garage. Then came um, you know, Microsoft in Seattle and Google and Facebook moved from New York to Silicon Valley, LinkedIn, uh, Salesforce, you name it. The whole internet culture, the technology culture, began and thrived in Silicon Valley. I asked myself, what is the reason so much innovation coming from a small area? Initially, I thought it has had to do with um, you know, universities like Stanford University. But then I realized that we have even older uh, historic universities in the Boston and East Coast. But you don't hear about those kind of innovations coming out of uh, those universities or that area. So there was something unique about uh, Silicon Valley organizations. I started asking questions up to the leaders and founders of many of these organizations. And I found that uh, the folks in Silicon Valley have a different mindset about uh, taking risk. And they said that if someone comes to me with a new idea, my questions are more about how to make that work as opposed to what are the chances that you're going to fail. Likewise, if you are a venture capitalist, VC, they are more likely to take a risk with someone there as opposed to the East Coast where the venture capitalists or VCs were much more risk averse and traditionalists. And they would ask questions like, well, have you tried this before? Um, what's your history with innovation? And have you been a successful entrepreneur before? But in Silicon Valley, the questions were, um, well, uh, what do you need to make this happen? It's almost like you know, reframing and seeing how to make these things work. Strangely, I found that uh, the VCs and senior leadership of traditional companies in Silicon Valley were more comfortable with ambiguity than you know, CEOs or uh, VCs in many other parts of the area. Um, long story short, I developed a concept called appreciative intelligence. It is one of the intelligences. And it is important to remember that Intelligence is not a single ability, though many of us might think it is. Uh, someone has a high IQ. That refers only to what we call the general intelligence. But you could have musical intelligence and be Alicia Keys. You could have spatial intelligence. Um, you could have kinesthetic intelligence and be a great dancer. You could have linguistic intelligence and be a great writer or emotional intelligence and have therefore have the capacity to connect with people and so on. So I found that appreciative intelligence is yet another kind of intelligence within the model of multiple intelligences you know, um, put forward by the famous uh, psychologist Harvard Gardner in Harvard. I found that 
appreciative intelligence is an important uh, type of intelligence. It is the capacity to reframe and see something positive in a situation that is not normally available to us and then work with that to make that new reframing come to reality. People who do the reframing are not really saying, okay, let me reframe now. No, it just happens to them. We academics do the research and you know retrospectively find out that that is what they were doing. So Howard Shoes, the founder of um, Starbucks, actually reframed and said, I would like to have coffee shops where people will come sit and enjoy the experience and that is how it started. And then they introduced Wi-Fi and all other things. And but initially, that is how it began. So, you know, Amazon, you know, began at the reframing called books without a bookstore. That was the reframing, and from that, of course, it went to so many other things. When I first heard about this, I thought this strikes me as a curiosity practice. Now, you haven't really used the word curiosity. But is that reframing? Is that potential to sort of see something that other people are not seeing? Do you see a connection to curiosity there? Uh, yes, yes, very much, Lynn. Um, I did not use the term curiosity specifically, but it is very connected. Um, my original training in appreciative inquiry, that is how I you know, learned about reframing is um, based on this metaphor called mystery. And David Kuprider, the one of the founders of Appreciative Inquiry, Suresh Srivastava, talked about that mystery metaphor from theology, that we don't know what is going to happen and there's a mystery about it. And that is the curiosity, that not knowing and therefore having an open mind about what lies ahead of you. And you can actually have curiosity when you are able to reframe. And that is the important thing. So the reframing is really what allows curiosity because curiosity is not a default mode for a lot of us. And the higher you go up in an organization, the more routine and bureaucratic things become. So there's no place for curiosity unless you do this. So when you face a situation and, uh, and you don't know all the answers, that curiosity allows you to be comfortable with that ambiguity, that uncertainty of not knowing what lies ahead. So curiosity is an asset, something that we must you know, constantly develop and highlight the value and relate that to things like appreciative intelligence and reframing capacity to see the positive. That comes out of curiosity too, because when you are curious, you're more open about possibilities. You can see see more when you're curious. And that is why it is so connected to appreciative intelligence. Interesting. Well, I was interested to read in your writings about sort of the markers of appreciative intelligence and certainly tolerance for uncertainty, but also, interestingly, persistence, conviction that one's actions actually matter, and this irrepressible resilience. And these seem really important to me right now. And I wonder if you might elaborate on how they fit into, how they're markers for appreciative intelligence. The concept was developed based on research, and I was observing leaders 
who reframed and came up with new ideas and uh, products. Um, Brownie Wise, who came up with uh, Tupperware, as you know. Tupperware was uh, something uh, invented by a male engineer, and he uh, he uh, featured that in department stores, and they were just sitting there, uh, Tupperware, and nobody was buying them. And then Brownie Wise sees it, and so what she did was, she reframed and created this concept called, you know, house parties, you know, the home parties. So she will have this Tupperware parties. But when I studied her, I found that she had this amazing conviction that her actions mattered. She was so comfortable. We call in psychology self-efficacy. It's a very highly researched concept, one of the most researched concept in psychology, self-efficacy. It is the same thing. That when you have self-efficacy, that is when you have a conviction that your actions matter, she could go into go to these Tupperware parties and demonstrate the qualities of you know airtight and this and that. And then it really made a difference and people started you know, buying it. So this is where the you know the curiosity somehow connects with that tolerance for ambiguity and also that self-efficacy, the confidence. The resilience is the other piece that when there is uh, uncertainty in the environment, there's a lot of fear about what is going to happen. Just like these days, right? We don't have to, you know, give examples from the past. Think about what is going on now. There is so much uncertainty about what is going on now. And this is probably the best time to have appreciative intelligence. And I tell people that... Five years from now, when you look back, you know, you don't want to say, oh, my God, I missed those opportunities. There were so many things I could have reframed and did it at that time when we had something like COVID-19. But we were so frozen in time and so fearful that everything is going to end. And uh, so we were reacting out of our fear as opposed to, you know, reframing and uh, and being comfortable with uncertainty. We wanted to reduce uncertainty by coming up with all sort of traditional approaches, but we missed those opportunities. Uh, whereas historically speaking, when we had the financial crisis, there was a lot of reframing and things like Consumer Protection Bureau came out of it in the 19... 19- 70s, when we had the energy crisis, uh, Detroit uh, became more fuel efficient. So good things have historically come out of crises. But it's very hard to experience or think about them while you are in that moment. It's always looking back, but it's always a few people who take the lead in doing that. So I'm hoping that people who listen to the show will say, what are the reframing opportunities possible for me right now that I'm not seeing? You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Professor Tojo Thatchenkeri. We're talking about the generative possibilities inherent in even the most difficult of times. As I was mentioning before before we got going on this, that even having just read your work, that I find myself thinking sort of explicitly, well, how might I reframe that? Or offering it to friends, how might you reframe the frustration that you're feeling or this thing that you're seeing as an obstacle, reframe it as an opportunity? How does that change 
how you approach it. And I can I can vouch for it. It's actually a really powerful practice to to sort of stop and think, can I reframe this? And part of what you're saying is that people who do this either intuitively or with intention because they've built this muscle, this practice, uh, this is an opportunity really for for some innovation, for some leaps forward that somebody is going to see the oak tree in the acorn that is now. Exactly. And and we in the university uh, face this uh, visibly uh, with online education, but we are um, very concerned what would happen to the educational experience of students uh, at the same time, will this create a new paradigm in instructions? And maybe there are certain things you can do better in online than in person. And so there could be innovation coming out of this crisis about the educational experience. And maybe education will become more available to the whole globe, you know, that uh, maybe it will become cheaper as opposed to how expensive it is these days. So good things could come out of it, though the default mode is to worry about. Is to worry. Yeah. I had not seen this language before that you mentioned in your writings is this idea of the double loop learning, of sort of examining the assumptions behind the assumptions. And this does seem like exactly, I mean, the online learning is a really good example of that, I think, of the challenge and the opportunity to revisit our assumptions about how people can and do learn or how people can and do feel in relationship with one another or feel connected to one another that this is an opportunity to maybe revisit some of those things. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, uh, the, the concept of the learning organization uh, by Chris Argeris and Don Sean, uh, it's an organization that can question its own assumptions. So as a university, we have to do that. And our assumption is that we need to be in front of students in a classroom looking at them and they're taking notes when you speak. Now, here is a new assumption that uh, they will experience you in a different medium, and uh, that could even be better for them in some respect. And they could listen to you again and again because they recorded it, you know. Even they forgot to take notes, they, they still have it somewhere else, and they can go back and look at it. And uh, so there are so many ways, um, you know, this uh, thinking about our assumptions and you know, thinking about the thinking, that's another way of calling it, um, is important now than any other time. Um, as a university, we need it, uh, but it's hospital systems. I mean, healthcare, um, manufacturing, a service sector, everywhere, airlines, you know, um, I mean, they could go out of business if they don't reframe and think about different ways of doing this business, uh, but it's very hard. Well, you've also done some interesting work on what you call appreciative sharing for knowledge, ask as a management tool to leverage that tacit knowledge in organizations. This strikes me as one of those places where sort of looking around and figuring out how do we collect everything we need to know to figure out how to pivot as a business. Have you seen evidence of that? I mean, when you think about the concept itself, it is this notion that there are good things happening in terms of knowledge sharing in organizations, but it is not available to everyone. Also, there is a culture against knowledge sharing. And if you share everything you know, 
the fear is that, well, they won't need me anymore. So let me not share everything. The reframing is to ask people, when did you share knowledge? What was that like? And what was different at that time? So by looking at examples where people were naturally you know, willing and happy to share knowledge and highlighting those uh, examples and analyzing them, we can come up with something called knowledge enablers. What enables knowledge sharing? Uh, so that's but where the appreciative part of it comes in. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It allows people to see what is present as opposed to what is absent. Because if you ask what is absent, the list would be really long. Uh, but if you ask what is present, it makes people to slow down and, and even see something they've never seen before. They see talent that is right in front of them that they never saw before. They see resources that are around them which they never saw as resources before. That is where the reframing comes in. And with the knowledge management, the biggest challenge organizations face today is that they are not able to get people to share what they're doing right. And there are so many pockets of excellence, especially in big organizations, but it's very hard to get it out the benefit of the rest of the organizations. If you were going to coach an organization to to seize the opportunity that we have now in in this way what would you encourage them to do depending on the situation of course but i would ask them to think about the opportunities but how do i do that uh, maybe that is where an example will help so let us say coming back to um, something like employee engagement it's a big challenge uh, uh, with employee engagement these days because you know even when people were working in an organization like we have a lot of you know federal agencies here employee engagement was a big challenge now people are staying home so what does employee engagement mean when you don't even have employees around you you're just a one person sitting at home with children and uh, and cooking and you know doing multiple tasks and all that well the the reframing will be what are the ways asking somebody if i am a senior leadership i will ask uh, my staff my managers ask them um, you know how what will be uh, the scenario what would it look like for us to be really engaged as a community even though we are distributed across the world or across the country because of the covid-19 what would that look like um, that is a question about the future it's an attempt to see the mighty oak, you know, and they will be surprised by that question. Uh, the managers um, coming from a VP, but they will say, well, even though I'm alone, we had all these Zoom calls and I was able to see um, folks I've never seen before because they were in Denver or, you know, Shanghai or in Rio and so on. And I've developed connections with them and uh, I'm able to talk to them and uh, they're able to share things to me in chat, uh, which I find extremely useful. And these were things I could never do because on site, we were so hectic, meetings after meetings, we had no time for reflection. No, I am having more time for reflection and chat and even talk to somebody in Zoom and see him or her and even getting to know them in a personal way. I see their kitchen or <laughs> right. their sitting room and the dog and, and their children. And suddenly there is a community. So people feel more engaged. Now, in a very mysterious way, 
employee engagement is being taken care of, but in a very unexpected way. That will be an example of reframing. And so to answer your question, I would say, whatever level you are in, you have to ask the question about a possibility as opposed to a deficit. You have to ask yourself, what is the possibility that is right here in front of me, I'm not able to see, but if I were to see it, it would make a big difference in whatever I'm doing. Potential in what's in front of us. That's actually a great segue. I have in front of me my big jar of wannabe analogies. Can I invite you to do my big jar of wannabe analogies with me? Oh, sure. Okay, okay. In this jar, I have slips of paper, and on each of the slips of paper are written uh, random words, and I'm taking one for you, one for, oops, one for me, and one for our audience. And we're going to make an analogy to whatever is written on this slip of paper. So uh, yours says sunshine, and mine says, oh my, violets. So uh, you want to go or you want me to go? No, I like sunshine. It's, okay. Uh, to me, it's uh, beauty and brightness uh, and uh, possibilities. Nice. I like that. Okay. Curiosity is certainly full of possibilities. I like that. So I have violets. How is curiosity like violets? Um, I happen to love violets uh, in part because they sort of hide in the lawn. You know, they're not a they're not a showy flower, but they're there and. When you go looking for them, you discover great swaths of them. And I think curiosity is a lot like that, too, that when you go looking for it, uh, you discover it's got a lot to offer and it's um, colorful and fun and all. So that's how curiosity is like violets. And we have a a little bit of a theme here. And for the audience, how is curiosity like seeds? Let me know. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. How is curiosity like seeds? Well, Tojo, thank you so much for this. This has really been fun. And I, I have to say, I really appreciate this idea of reframing right now. I think it's very empowering to be thinking about the opportunities for looking for the generative possibilities around us. So thank you for that. Thank you, Lynn. I very much enjoyed having this conversation and it allowed me to think about, okay, I need to do some reframing as well. (laughs) And uh, as I am talking to my dean and others, and so I'm asking myself what other things I need to do. So your conversation prompted me to that direction. Thank you for that. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. I'm Lynn Borton, and I've enjoyed being your host today. You can catch all of my shows on this fine station and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. And I hope you'll send us your seeds analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guests, Tojo Thachinkari, and to Lauren Epstein, who introduced me to Tojo's work. You can learn more about Tojo and appreciative intelligence on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and this is partly Sage, my body tonic via Blue Dot Sessions. So as you go into your day, how might you reframe, appreciate the positive, and consider what potential future might unfold from what's before us today? I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, choose to be curious.